You're listening to Astonishing Healthcare, the podcast hosted by Capital Rx, focusing on the biggest issues affecting healthcare consumers, benefits plan sponsors, and health plans. We're covering the inside baseball on how things truly work or don't in the U.S. healthcare system and pharmaceutical supply chain in an astonishingly efficient way. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Astonishing Healthcare Podcast. This is Justin Veneri, Director of Communications at Capital Rx. And for the first ever episode, we're joined by Capital Rx co-founder and CEO, AJ Loyacano. And we're going to discuss the evolution of the business model here at Capital Rx with a focus on opportunities, maybe some hurdles to growing a technology-enabled healthcare services company, how to overcome them, responsible growth, and more. AJ, thanks so much for joining us today to share your experience and insights. Uh, thanks for having me, Justin. All right, to start off, AJ, anyone who's heard you speak before knows your background and how you started in pharma supply chain software way back in the early 2000s. Can you discuss what led you to the conclusion that you needed to start a PBM late in 2017, early 2018, and then why evolve the business following Judy's launch in 2021? I think it's, I find it funny now that we say way back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, way back in early 2000, uh, I was working in pharmaceutical manufacturing on the plant side, doing supply chain software, uh, consulting and installs. And I would like to say for the first eight years of my career, it was a non-event. You know, I thought that pharmaceutical manufacturing followed the same kind of principles as any manufacturing in the United States, where there's a manufacturing layer, there's a slight markup to a wholesaler layer with a slight markup to some sort of retail distribution. And I thought, I don't care if we're talking sneakers or semiconductors, it's the same thing with pharmaceutical products. Around 2010, I moved over to the payer side. So this is dealing with patients and insurance and carriers. And I was introduced to these three letters, PBM, pharmacy benefit managers. And I thought, oh, this must be the retail layer kind of like since the wholesaler layer, if you think about pharmaceutical manufacturing, you start with manufacturing wholesalers or people like McKesson and Cardinal and Amerisource Bergen. And then Really, it's the insurance layer in the United States, which is where you're dealing with the patient or consumer experience, so that retail experience. And that's where I was exposed to it. And the first thing that really challenged me was I read my first pharmacy benefit contract, and it was, you know, 50 to 100 pages long, like all PBM contracts. But what really struck me as odd is there were no drug prices in these agreements. And I'm like, well, really what we're talking about is cost and we're purchasing on cost. And, you know, I would hear these quote unquote industry experts from the payer side and they would talk about, well, you have to understand it's so complex and it's an average over time and there's price variability. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Once I sell something in the supply chain, it has a fixed price and it's sold to wholesalers and they're selling to pharmacies and they bought their inventory at a fixed price. Why are there no prices? They make it sound like prices don't exist in the US supply chain. And I'm like, prices exist. Like you're just not getting them. And then the other part that bothered me was price variability, this notion that prices are changing every hour of every day for every drug. And, you know, that's not the way the supply chain works. And, you know, if you wanted to see a stable drug pricing environment, you would go into the pharmacy. And I often say, don't go back to the register, to the pharmacist, 
go to the over-the-counter section and buy a bottle of Advil or Tylenol or eye drops or whatever it may be, and something magical happens. It doesn't matter if you're insured or uninsured, you work for the biggest employer or the smallest, go figure it's the same price. And if I come back an hour later, still the same price. And it could be weeks or months before the price of those products change. And if they were to change, it's because of supply and demand and market dynamics that would be pressuring price or changing price. And if I were to go across the street or on- online, the price of these products are very, very similar. But you walk 50 feet back to the pharmacy and you fill a prescription and no one knows the price of anything. To my earlier point, there's no fixed pricing in contracts. In addition, if you think about it, the price of drugs is apparently appears to be changing every hour of every day because there's this concept of averages and these very complex formulas that consider everything from DAW handling to limited supply to single source and multi-source variants. And the reality is nothing else in the United States has this level of opacity and complexity. And I felt like there was no need for this. And I tried in my prior career for eight years to change the way this process worked, but I couldn't. If you're not involved with the actual plan administration or claim adjudication, you know, unfortunately you can't change much. It's too little, too late. You're just not responsible for those actions. So in order to fix the problem, I felt like we had to become the problem, become the PBM. And that's exactly what we did. Got it. All right. How exactly does becoming the problem, creating a proprietary electronic claims processing platform, how does that help address the problem? How does that help or impact healthcare stakeholders and ultimately patients or plan members? Yeah. You know, the first thing that you're able to do when you're in charge of the benefit plan, you're the PDM and you're processing the claims on behalf of this payer, or you're a technology company and someone's using your platform, you now have the ability to engage and help each one of these entities improve the process. So let's take the employer side for a second. You know, I always say if you could just focus on being the best plan administrator possible, you're going to provide an invaluable service. And pricing really isn't the main goal of an administrator. People are like, well, what do you mean? If you have an efficient market where buyers and sellers freely communicate on price, price settles itself. I don't care if we're talking about gasoline or big screen TVs. Markets that have efficiency and are communicating on price just magically settle themselves. And so what you want to be as an administrator is if you're focused on allowing the endpoints of fulfillment, this is retail pharmacy chains, mail order facilities, specialty pharmacies and rebate aggregators with the pharmaceutical manufacturers. If you're allowing these dollars to freely flow and people to compete on price openly and allow people of any plan size to access the same prices where there's no artificial price disparity, then you are creating efficiency. And really what your job then is to do is to create the best plan experience, the most accurate claim processing experience, and to make the best patient experience. And that's both services and outcomes. 
if you're focused on these things, you're going to require a modern platform. And what does the modern platform allow you to do? It allows you to do all of these services and solutions at the lowest possible price point. I often say, what's the difference between an old MRP platform and a more modern ERP solution and supply chain? And the ERP solution, in my personal opinion, contemplates more work streams, more workflows, leveraging automation and optimization. And it's really getting at efficiency and bringing down operating expense. To administrate any benefit plan and service any patient, there is an operating expense to that. Mm -hmm. And so by having a modern technology platform, you can bring down these costs and no longer burden the price of the drug to ensure the administrator is making a fair margin for its services and the patient and plan are exposed to a reasonable price that enables them to control costs and manage the disease states the different members obviously require therapy for. So doing these things on a platform, a modern platform, was critical, was central to our thesis. We must build this massive enterprise health platform to not just process claims. When people think about pharmacy technology, they think of, oh, it's processing electronic claims. That's one action. What a PBM does is hundreds of critical administrative workflows, eligibility file, who's in the plan, who's not in the plan, plan setup, underwriting, what is the offering for this membership, Mm -hmm. clinical workflows, network management, patient workflows, network reimbursement, prior authorization, billing, all of these services require at some points, human intervention or just cost of setup. And if you can reduce that cost of setup or remove the friction point where you're having someone focus more on high quality, high value activities and less on maintenance and recurring structure or infrastructural system issues, you can create a much better solution. Because really what was, again, our main focus of the company is how do I administrate one-fifth to one-sixth the cost of existing services today. That, that was really the benchmark. And that's exactly what we did by developing Judy. Judy is short for adjudication. You mentioned it, our launch in 2021, but it took us years to build towards that. And to be perfectly frank, you know, I often say it's very easy to build some sort of point solution or mobile application. But to build true enterprise software at scale, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars in a decade of your time. This is not easy. It's why some of the largest payers are still using systems that are 20, 30 years old. Right. And never mind while you're actually delivering the benefit to several you know, unions, employers, and others that are trusting you along the way to administer the plan. And obviously we've been fortunate and you know, are appreciative of the, the growth we've experienced due to our clients putting their trust in us. As a, as a leader, you know, how do you think about that growth or responsible growth along the way? And what needs to happen to get further down the road toward our ultimate goal? Yeah, I often say we're you know, two companies in one. One side of the house, we're a full service healthcare company where we are servicing employer groups, unions, municipalities, health plans, et cetera. And the other side of the house, we're a software company where we offer SaaS and platform as a service solutions to 
large carriers and health plans to administrate their pharmacy benefit program. And I think for us, when we think about growth or responsible growth, you have to balance both of these divisions at the same time, which is you can't take away from either one of these. It's hyper and critical for us that we deliver the best customer support and experience possible. So you're supporting your healthcare company side of the house. And on the other side, you have a software company and it's not just, you know, what I call break, fix, maintenance, but it's hefty R&D because you're constantly evolving to meet the ever emerging regulatory requirements that are placed upon you, state and federal level. Mm -hmm. But in addition, you're also investing in what you believe is going to be beneficial to your client base. So developing technology and services that will benefit your customers as well. So, you know, when you talk about responsible growth is you are certainly going to have to balance both of these because they're critical for the success of this company. I often say if we were just a software company, I don't think we would write the same type of software quality of software right today because by actually using our own systems and support, we're our own best customer and we can experience these friction points in real time. By being a customer and the author of our own software, I think it has given us an incredible opportunity to write the best workflow and claim administration solutions in the market today. And I think that's the other part of that responsible growth is supporting both sides of this because I think healthcare software and healthcare administration requires a personalized view more than anything else. Otherwise, you're going to write something to spec and it's going to be very mediocre. Got it. Uh, along the way of running these parallel businesses, you know, what would you say are you know call one or two of the biggest challenges you've or we've had to face in the last couple of years as we've grown? And how did you approach dealing with them? <laughs> well, I mean, the first one is you can't be a high growth business and have gone through the pandemic and said nothing changed. Um, so I would say the biggest change for me was if you you know going back to your earlier. I think it's a comical statement back to the early 2000s where there were horses and buggies. Or um, yeah, you know, but but I'm just saying, like, if you go back to the early 2000s for a second, I grew up in a culture of everybody goes to an office Monday through Friday, roughly nine to five, and software that could be nine to nine <laughs> for software development. But <laughs> but the whole point of it is we're all together. And we have a centralized hub. Yeah, you might have a few people that are remote, but for the most part, this was the business model I was taught. And this is the business model we started with at Capital RX. You know, we were all in New York City, probably 90% of our workforce. We would all come in five days a week. You know, there were no flex hours and there are so many benefits from that. And there are also many hindrances or wasteful moments. You know, I myself probably commuted roughly an hour and 20 minutes each side of my commute. There's close to three hours of my day that's missing every day for 20 years, you know, you could say. But it's, if you really think about it and, and look at the pandemic, it completely changed our entire organization. So we went from 90% in New York City to now we're in 36 states. 
You know, we were 70 employees, we're over 600 now. If you continue to think through that as well, we also have decentralized leadership. The C-suite was all in New York City. Now we're in multiple cities. My board was very centralized. Now they're all over the United States as well. When you go from a footprint that's hyper-centralized to decentralized, working round the clock in different time zones and different hours, and you have to suddenly think about how do I still maintain a culture? How do I still train people? How do you still create mentorships or bonds with people? How do you kind of scout and see your next generation of leaders? And, you know, generation isn't necessarily time, like think of generations of families, generations is business generation. Like, hey, this three years was gen one of the company. The next Mm -hmm. three years is gen two. The next three years is gen three and so on. And so each generation, think about it. People that are, you know, associates are becoming managers or directors. People that are managers or directors are growing into VPs. People that are junior engineers are becoming senior engineers. And this evolutionary process must continue for business to be successful because at the core You want people that have grown with the company, not constantly rotating through attrition. You want your most talented people always, if you can, to retain them and to bring them with you in the journey. And so when you look back and you say, what was the biggest challenge? Hands down, pandemic, surprise, surprise. However, the existing challenge that still exists to this day is you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We're not going back to nine to five in a centralized office setting, but we're going to embrace the benefits and you know really try and address the weaknesses, is that some of them that I've mentioned. And I think that's what we're focused on still to this day. So you know that big challenge, it's still here but it's also an advantage at the same time where people are given more time. They're having more time with their family, more flexibility, Uh, the ability for people that were primary earners in their family household to also take on roles of helping the family. And I think that's, you know, a real blessing in this. I think you just have to obviously navigate the other parts and balance it out. That's a good one. I guess I've got a slight pivot now. So what's the number one thing you're hearing from plan sponsors that they need or want at this time? And how do you think they can get or achieve it? Well, uh, plan sponsors that are not my customer want obviously lower costs and better service. Uh, People that are presently customers of Capital Arcs are really on the more elevated or thought-provoking questions, which are more around, hey, let's look at different populations that are more vulnerable or require more care. How do we think about making our population healthier? How do we think about precision medicine? How do we think about expensive therapies that are entering market that could have benefits relative to the cost? And how do we balance that? You know, rather than, you know, go straight to a particular topic, uh, I'm going to be like cough <laughs> GLP-1s. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. But I, I think that's today's soup du jour. You know, there'll be something tomorrow and the next day and something will come up in five years from now and that will be the new therapy everyone's focused on. So there's always going to be a new therapy. And I say it is 
great to believe we live in a time where there are cures now emerging for many disease states, starting with more smaller disease states or uh, limited distribution drug sets. But, you know, as we begin to look to the future, I'm assuming this is going to continue to expand to more common disease states, be it better treatment of or outright cures, there's a cost to these things. And so the biggest challenge I would say for our customer base today, and we're very well designed to meet these challenges is the data and accessibility and alignment to make sure we're making the right decisions together. And so when I, one of the beautiful things about the CapillarX model is Every decision we make is for the benefit of the plan or the patient because we don't make any more or less money on anyone's drug spend. So if someone would be like, they would say, hey, look, I want to cut 50% of my drug spend. I'm using an extraordinary example to just make a point here, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't change our payment because we're paid on obviously per member per month or if it was on prescript even, again, it wouldn't bother us. Our whole point is we're aligned. While if someone is has a business model predicated on more drug spend, that could be a very difficult decision, potentially. Mm-hmm. And so the other part of it is, do you have a system that ties together efficiently all the data streams? So not just pharmacy, but medical data, time and attendance. And yes, Judy was designed to ingest all these data points. And then The other part of it is when you think about this is how do you make thoughtful recommendations? So can you easily model things on Judy? Can you also design and implement something? So you go through the data, do you come up with an idea? Can I implement that idea for a lot of people to be like, the system won't support it. One of the cool things about Judy is it's designed to contemplate the future of care which is precision medicine or value-based care decisions. And so a lot of the legacy systems terminate at a group level. So the lowest point in which you could administrate something is at a plan level. With Judy, the lowest point that you can administrate something is at a patient level. So I could create a formulary for a patient. I could create a, if you wanted to, people that are... uh, Arisa purists would be like, well, you can't do that. But if you wanted to create incentive models for certain populations, you could. If you wanted to create what I would say global programs for certain disease states, you could very easily implement these things on Judy. You could very easily analyze the data to come to these conclusions. And I think the last part is when you're speaking with anyone in our organization, you always know that we have your best intent or the best goals in mind because we're aligned. We took a business model and tried to make it as pure as possible, which is we're paid to administrate the plan at the end of the day. I could have two plans that are the same exact size. I could have two 5,000 life employer groups, Mm -hmm. but One's a municipality and they're on a fixed budget with their, you know, budgeting protocols and they're very concerned about cost. And then I could have a 5,000 life case, which is a wealthy technology company, and they're less concerned about cost and they're very focused on trying to find ways to create a better member experience and even create a healthier workforce. And They're not necessarily mutually exclusive cost savings and better outcomes and better access. They do create breaking points where you can't move 
all the way towards an open formulary and precision medicine and not have today some sort of cost impact due to formulary noncompliance as well as other issues. And so it's just something to always be mindful of, but I always go back to you are being brought in to engage with your customer as a thought leader, you know, not just a vendor that processes things, but our job is to help them solve for what is most important for their membership and for their organization. That makes a ton of sense. And I think a lot of people attribute the slowness of change to misaligned incentives, a lot of money at stake. And then we see the regulatory focus and legislative focus finally breaking down some of those barriers, or it seems to. So maybe twofold, what's your outlook or expectation for more reform to pass and how will the market deal with it? Well, I don't think legislation is going to slow down anytime soon. I think until we have a couple bills fully pass the House and the Senate and be signed by the president. There's also regulatory oversight or governance from the pen or procedure that, you know, CMS and HHS continues to create, I think, thoughtful procedures or oversight to help protect the consumer or create better care. Um, So I don't see it slowing down until costs slow down. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think the reason why there's so much concern in these areas is because, you know, the thing that I point to on pharmacy is back to the horse and buggy days of early 2000s. Drug spend domestically was $110, $120 billion. You know, this past year, we crossed $600 billion domestic yep. US spend top line. And so, you know, did we increase our population 500%? No. <laughs> uh, and people will be like, well, therapies are getting more expensive. I'm like, sure. But what, 94, 95% of all therapies from, you know, even 10 years ago are off patent at this point. True, true. You know, so we have an extraordinarily large generic and biosimilar market. The question is, are costs finally going to come down? You know, and so there's always new drugs and new therapies that are coming available to market that are increasing costs because they're not a true replacement cost for something like the example I was giving someone's on a statin and it's a different statin, you know, and one price is, you know, 10% different than the other. And then it's just a 10% cost increase. But if there's just a brand new drug that's entering and there's never been utilization at scale before, you know, again, going back to GLP-1s, you know, it's 100% cost, you know, that's new. And then the question becomes is how much more expensive is this therapy than the average cost of a drug? And again, not to focus on GLP-1s, but it's fresh in everyone's mind. If it's 5x the cost of the average cost of a drug, the average cost is $120, $130 in the United States for 30-day supply. So then suddenly you're like, well, wait a second, something is not a replacement cost and it's five times the cost of the average drug. Well, that's going to move drug trend 10%, 12%. How, how far can it go? And so, again, I think legislation and regulation will continue until we feel as if we have our arms around the cost of care for prescriptions in the United States. And 
until that happens, I see plenty of attention uh, over the next five to 10 years. All right. And so here, we'll go just jump to the last question here. So AJ, what's the most astonishing thing that you've seen or heard that you can share, of course, <laughs> as it relates to our discussion today or the pharmacy benefit or benefits industry? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a recurring theme, you know, that I started to get a glimpse of six, seven years ago at my old company and continues to this day, which is when we talk about pharmacy benefits, you know, and specifically I'm talking from the lens of plan administration. You are a plan sponsor. You're an employer, a municipality, a union, a health system, and you're offering an employee plan that has pharmacy benefits. So this is the vantage point I'm talking about. And What's very distressing to me is no one understands cost. So the question I ask, even when in the room with the consultant or broker for a self-insured entity, is what is the cost to administrate your plan? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I go, well, if you add one KPI, if you add one key performance indicator to manage a pharmacy benefit plan as an employer group or union, you would want to say, what is the cost per member per month or per employee per month? I don't really care to administrate this plan. And I would like to know, my question is always the same. What was the cost five years ago, four years ago, three years, two years, one year? And more importantly, what are you expecting it to be this year? Or if we're in the new year, what are you expecting it to be this current year? I've asked this question hundreds of times in my career. Nobody has an answer. Think about that. The most important thing, it should be tattooed on your arm. It's that important <laughs> as a plan administrator. You should be read it off your arm. Ours is 112 per month. And last year, it was uh, 109. The year before that, it was 102. And before that, it was 96. And we think it's going to be, you know, 119 coming up. Who knows? But the whole point is nobody knows. What does that tell me? Nobody knows what they're even doing. It's frightening. And the reason why is because the entire industry has been trained to talk about discounts and rebate numbers that mean nothing. I mean, you can hit every single performance indicator in a contract and be like, look at me, I have a great contract. But your trend is up seven, eight, nine percent. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, well, that's not bad. And this is what's so distressing. We have these bid scenarios. We as vendors, we bid. There's an RFP, a request for proposal. And what's interesting is the RFP should be asking for the very KPI I'm talking about. The KPI should be, what do you think the cost of our plan is going to be next year? Right. Yeah. And instead, it's what is the average wholesale price with a discount over an entire year with different classifications and different overrides. And, you know, I just sit there and I'm saying, what? And they'll run these RFPs, consultants and brokers, and they'll say, we're selecting this person because they're going to save 25%. This one's going to save 28%. This one's going to save 30%. And I'm just like, time out. Is anyone going to guarantee the actual cost of this stuff? They're like, well, we have a contract. I go, that's not what I'm asking. Your contract is just saying you're going to hit these discounts over time off of fictitious whack prices or AWP prices. That means nothing. The only thing that you know is what you pay in your bill. Oh, and here's the other trick. People say, well, it was in the claims data. The claims data is only one part of this puzzle. What you pay as a plan is in your bill. The claims data in your bill never will match. Never in my lifetime I've ever seen it. And I've said that as an auditor. I've said that as a claim processor, PBM. 
because you always have claims moving. But more importantly, it's not capturing all the costs. You have ancillary costs, you have clinical costs in these workflows and in your contracts as well. So the cost to the plan is your invoice. That's where you should be looking for your cost and your KPI, not in your claims data. And someone be like, well, what, do you care about the claims data? Of course we care about the claims data. It's going to help us make some informed decisions in our underwriting. But the point to the plan is they don't understand thousands of different drugs and thousands of different therapies. They understand cost and they understand their members' happiness. These are the two things you should be gauging. But the point of it, again, that I'm getting back to is you run these RFPs and they have these fictitious results. And they're fictitious because ask an actuary in the United States if they would have taken employer group, drug spend, and look to the future, I don't care what happened in the RFP, and go below a 0% trend. Because these RFPs are saying you're going to save 20% or 30%. There's not an actuary in the United States that would take that risk. They're making a professional assessment. They could be sued if this information is inaccurate. What's odd is the broker or the consultant in this could say any number and, oh, well, it was a best guess. It was an estimate. And as the broker consultant, are they at risk? for providing this information? Absolutely not. So if the consultant says you're going to save 25% and your drug spend is plus 4% next year, so it's a 29% miss, they're going to be like, well, I'm not paying for that. And the PBM is not paying for it. The only person who's paying for it is the payer, the employer, the union group, again, or the municipality. And I find this very interesting. You know, If you were to ask a risk-bearing entity, most risk-bearing entities can't even write risk below 110% attachment point. That means they're trending 10% above whatever it was you were doing last year. You mean like a stop loss? Yes, exactly. And so this is, again, is where I, I try and focus on reality. And the reason why this would be such a clear argument is if people knew the KPI that I was talking about. If you tracked your cost per member per month over the last five years, people are like, that's really complex. I'm like, it's third grade math. (laughs) It's your invoices in totality over 12 months. So this is the plan pay portion, less rebates for that same period divided by monthly eligibility. There's the number. That's it. And you do that every year. And you're not going to see your drug spend going down 20%. (laughs) You would be, you know, around zero after a certain point, you know, just taking in, you know, 12-year cycle of contracting. And that's not the truth. Inflation is what people miss in all of this so much. And people are going to say, well, drug prices are always going up. Again, I'm going to throw out a little bit of my bullshit card here, which is generic drugs are deflating. Every year, generic drugs deflate 10%. People are like, well, brand drugs and specialty drugs are going up in price. I go, yes, they are going up in price in list, but in net price, they're negative. You know, so if you have a large population outside of catastrophic risk and you're passing everything through and you have thoughtful utilization and continuation of therapy within FDA or ICER guidelines, what you're going to see is a negative trend, but you have to manage that. But it's not going to be to the extent that is sometimes seen in these RFPs. And so what I want everyone to understand more and more is we need to step away from this nonsense of I have good rates. I don't even know what that means because as I stated earlier, no one knows the price of any drug in the United States. You you could put a panel of five subject matter experts and we could play 
let's debate the price of this drug. <laughs> That's astonishing by itself. <laughs> and, and, and it's true, you know? And so what and people, and, and I hate this argument. People are like, well, drugs are so complex. There's very hard to make. So it's so difficult to get a price. I go, that is completely absurd. And the example I always give is something like uh, graphical processing units, like GPUs, like NVIDIA or AMD. It's the same price anywhere you're standing in the United States, literally. And it's one of the hardest things to manufacture on the planet. Yet it's not just the same price in the United States. It's the same price literally anywhere in the world outside of currency conversion. And even then it's going to adjust for it. That's a hyper-efficient market, hyper-transparent, hyper-efficient. Yes, we can have prices on drugs. Yes, we can have net prices on drugs. And yes, we should be broadcasting price efficiently, but we should be managing to absolute price, managing to the absolute cost of the plan. That's what everybody in the United States has been missing for the last 20 years. What is the KPI? The KPI you should care about first and foremost is what is the cost to administrate this plan? The second one would be patient satisfaction. Obviously, member satisfaction is critical in this, but these things go hand in hand. Managing cost effectively and delivering the highest level of service, this should be the thesis statement and goal for every plan administrator and plan sponsor in the United States. And this is what everyone has been missing. And it's been driving me crazy. And thankfully, we have plenty of customers that have seen the light, plenty of customers that have come over to CapitalRx and have an extraordinary experience. And the thing I want to say is we couldn't do this without Judy. We couldn't put together this type of plan, this type of experience, this type of member experience without the capabilities of Judy. Everything comes together on our technology platform. And this ability to managing to cost is, again, critical to, I think, the success of the United States overall in bringing down the cost of pharmacy benefits. We need to move away from this antiquated modality of averages over time and list prices that mean nothing and focusing on cost to manage a plan and making sure that we have visibility and you can set a budget to whatever is being told to you by the PBM and or consultant in the process. And I do want to caveat this. We're working with more and more consultants and brokers that appreciate, see, and realize that we're speaking a logical truth and moving the business model and the paradigm is shifting faster and faster in this direction because we don't buy anything else with an average over time with different prices and different exclusions and different classifications of the very thing that needs to be priced. I have a price and I'm setting it. And I'm managing a service or solution around that. I think that's what's been missing for far too long. Yeah, I think the, it is encouraging to see a lot of the uh, channel partners understanding this and, and working towards something better. So um, AJ, really appreciate you taking your time to speak with us today. Definitely have to have you back on soon for a discussion on some of these topics that we can peel back a little further, whether it's drug pricing or you know maybe the regulatory updates, or we'll see how the year unfolds. But thanks a lot for joining us. Episode 100, 100 more <laughs> episodes, Rick and Morty style. You got it. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Healthcare by Capital Rx. 
head over to cap-rx.com insights and visit the podcast section for show notes and other relevant content. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. And definitely share the link to the show with your network if you enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day.